Hier komen wij in vreemd. This is Red Flag Radio. We're recording this on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Ros Ward and I'm happy to be hosting a special series of the podcast, which is a beginner's guide, a sort of socialist introduction series on a bunch of different topics that we think as socialists are really important for people who are interested in getting more involved in being a socialist activist in um, understanding better and today's topic is the Beginner's Guide to Revolution, and I am joined by Tess Demos and Omar Hassan to help discuss this topic. Welcome to the show, both of you. How are you going, Raz? I'm very good, and I'm very happy to be talking about revolution, because it's an exciting topic. Um, Most important topic. Could Well, we could argue that with all of these <laughs> ones, I reckon. People would have different um, things to say about that. But it's also a word that gets kind of tossed around a lot in terms of this is revolutionary, that's revolutionary, everything's revolutionary, you know, um, a revolutionary new vacuum cleaner design, revolutionary new hair conditioner, and there's people talk about revolutions all the time. Um, can we just quickly clarify sort of what we are and we aren't talking about? Yeah, I mean, the older I get, the more I really appreciate really good appliances and, and toothbrushes and so on. But what we're talking about here is um, uh, the fundamental transformation of society, um, which uh, is is the original term of the revolution, and and when people think of revolutions, they often the stereotypical image is people with pitchforks and you know angry mobs and so on. Um, so I guess what we're going to talk about today is the, how the the truth is very far from that. It's about the uplifting of the average person to be part of making history and the fundamental changes that come from that. Okay, so Tess, um, let's go from the beginning then. Like, what leads to a revolutionary moment like what can be some of the things that mean that revolutions have happened in history or could happen again what starts a revolution well revolutions i mean there's so many that you could list over the history of capitalism they like it would be quite an impossible task i think to try and come up with a comprehensive list of the number of revolutions that happen they're really created by the system of capitalism itself that the pressure that um such an exploitative and oppressive and brutal system puts on ordinary people and the mass of ordinary people can lead to quite dynamic rebellions of the mass of humanity. And when we're talking about a revolution taking place, this is not like some small group, um, you know, trying to seize control for themselves or on behalf of, of other people. We're talking about the, the masses all trying to fight for a total transformation of the way that society is organised. So, you know, you can see revolutions that break out like the Russian Revolution response to the war, a major crisis in the um, ruling class in Russia, a major crisis for the um, mass of people in Russia who were starving, who were being forced to fight in this war and, and being killed. Um, all of these things can can help push people as a collective to resist. Yeah, it's sort of like um, when the ruling class is discredited, and by the ruling class we just mean the people sort of in power, um, and that usually happens, yeah, as Tess said, because of a, a war that they're losing or because of an economic crisis that's exploding. And um, it just seems like the people in charge have no idea what's going on. I think we're seeing a bit of a glimpse of that today with the bushfires. Um, but you imagine that on a mass scale um, uh, happening for months at a time and, um, and the mass impoverishment of society. Um, 
And at a certain point, the, the, the mass of people decide enough is enough. We can't go on like this. And um, those two conditions, the crisis at the top and the lack of um, acceptance or tolerance of the situation from below, they're the kind of key elements, I think. So when you say that um, capitalism creates those crises, like how does capitalism create an economic crisis? Because some people don't believe that that's the fault of the system. They just think that people aren't sort of using it right. Yeah, right. Um, well, I, I mean, you can look at any economic crisis that's happened, but the the most recent one that um, uh, is very obviously created by the capitalist class was the 2008 global financial crisis when the banks just basically forced people um, onto these dodgy mortgages in, in America. And this led to a major, major crisis in the finance sector that spread all across across the globe and, and forced masses of people into um, unemployment, uh, cut, led to like huge cuts to social services, etc. That did lead to a major crisis. Okay, this was one that led to a revolution. Um, but, you know, there were major struggles against the capitalist class as a result of that crisis. Yeah, it's just so chaotic. Like, you never know what's going to happen in the economy. And, and even the capitalists don't know. And so... Every now and again, there's too much investment somewhere and not enough investment somewhere else or or there's just sort of chaos in the market or there's some imperial conflict that breaks out into war which um, destroys the living standards of millions of people. So all these kind of things can happen. Um, and, and, and the main effect of them is to um, impoverish the working class and the poor um, and expose the fact that the ruling class don't understand what's going on and, and can't provide what people need. So, so one of these, so you've either got a situation where People are incredibly sort of um, economically depressed through the capitalist system or um, politically repressed or um, some kind of war situation or something is happening basically that affects the mass Mm. of ordinary people, working class people, and that the ruling class sort of have lost control of the situation is sort of generally the, the sort of picture of where a revolution comes from. So then... What does it look like? Like, how do they actually start and what sort of things happen then? Yeah, well, it usually takes someone to um, take a stand. Uh, I know in, in the most recent round of um, the revolutions in the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, it was a, um, a fish seller in a regional town in Tunisia who the cops tried to confiscate his fish cart, which is the only way he has of surviving. And after protesting and, and, and arguing with the police for hours, he lost that battle. And so he set himself on fire. Uh, and the tragedy and um, sort of bravery in a kind of uh, depressing way of that act actually inspired an uprising in that town and then it spread across the country and then it spread across the region. Um, so someone has to take a stand in some way. Um, it happens differently in different places. Um, but that spark um, of bravery and courage um, is usually the thing that cracks open a situation that's otherwise passive because it can feel like you're oppressed by this overwhelming um, system, by um, this disgusting ruling class. But, but, a, but, but the, the act of taking a stand can, can pose an alternative in a way that didn't seem possible. And you can go from having a society that's extremely calm and placid to one that's um, in total turmoil. Yeah. Yeah, and there's just like this incredible flourishing when you look at the actual behaviours of people involved in a revolution of all of these different new kinds of activity that they've never been able to be involved in before. Like you think of what life is like for working class people under capitalism, very, very oppressive system, you told your whole life that you're worthless, that, you know, you, you don't deserve any better than just having a dead end job for a shitty wage. And at the end of your life, you're going to end up on a pension system with no money. 
Um, and then all of a sudden there's an explosion of resistance where people feel like they can start taking control of their own lives, like not just the the huge acts of defiance against the ruling class, the strike waves, the the political battles, the um, occupations, the the protests that happen, but also the big debates that take place in all of people's workplaces, in the universities, um, in city, city squares and streets um, of people trying to work out, you know, what is the way forward? How do we organise this? Um, how should we make sure that um, people are continuing to be able to live good lives during this this fight that we're waging against the capitalist class? It's quite incredible reading some of those stories. Mm. Yeah, and if you look at um, like the there's a common argument against socialism, which is that human nature makes it impossible. We're all just greedy and self interested. Um, the kind of stuff that Tess is talking about that, that goes on is amazing, and it's why revolutions have been described as the festivals of the oppressed. I know, like for example, in Hungary and, and more recently um, in Sudan and also in Hong Kong, um, though the last the last one is not really a revolution yet. Um, people just leave buckets of money in public spaces. Um, no one ever steals from it. It's just a resource that can be used by those who need it. Um, in the in the revolutions in the Middle East, you saw uh, Muslims and Christians protecting each other while praying. Um, you see the involvement of women in some you know incredible ways in societies that are otherwise uh, quite difficult for that group of people. So revolutions really bring out the best in human nature because suddenly you're not just like doing what you're supposed to be doing. So uh, it's a great period. It's a great thing to see, and all the potentiality of humanity is sort of unleashed at these times. And I think there's all sorts of different groups that can play a role in kind of starting and continuing revolutions and that you can see that in the historical examples i mean even with the egyptian revolution the first protest that happened um was somebody just setting up a facebook event and saying who wants to come to the terrier square on the 25th of january and it's sort of it was unheard of to have mass demonstrations mm. because the dictatorship in egypt was so brutal and repressive and sort of these moments can just happen very unexpectedly where people are like, okay, today is the day actually where I am going to go to this protest and we're all going to go. And then when we all go, we look around and we realise that the police can't do anything to stop us. Right. In fact, they're backing away now, you know. And these moments of power that ordinary people start to um, feel means that all of those other kind of barriers that you think exist in society actually exist kind of in your mind in a way that, Doing something makes you realise that you don't have to obey those rules or do things um, the way that you've always taught to be done. And in revolutionary situations, I think that's one of the massive things, you know, that it changes the way people think about their lives, um, which is why sort of when socialists talk about, you know, you have to have a revolution to get to socialism as part of that process of things that happen to people and the way they think about themselves and each other. And I think that cuts across some of the stuff about human nature as well, because You've got all of these divisions in, in our everyday lives that are um, encouraged by sexist behaviour, racist behaviour, homophobia, transphobia, all of those kind of things. And in a situation where you need everyone to be working together, then those things get to be challenged as well. Mm. Yeah, totally. Like the the different forms of oppression is just such a, a useful and important tool for the capitalist class, I think, in being able to divide people and, and make them feel worthless. Um, but in basically every revolution that you have, you see some section that will take a lead initially and that can inspire other people to come out who 
previously would not have associated with them necessarily. Um, like, you know, thinking of the, the Russian Revolution, this began with the, the women marching um, on International Working Women's Day and calling out men from the factories to come and join them in a revolution. That was really the spark that, that started the revolt. Or in 1968 in France, you saw the students have these running battles with the police in the streets. And it was really the students' defiance of the police and they're willing to stand up to police brutality that then inspired a mass strike of, of the working class in in France that then joined them in the struggle. Um, so there's kind of, yeah, breaking down of the barriers between different sections of the oppressed and different sections of the working class is a really crucial part, I think, of revolution. And Omar, um, so if we think about then who's on what side in a revolutionary um, moment like this, when stuff is starting to happen, people are starting to think, oh, we have some power if we are kind of unified, but who are they fighting against? Like, and, you know, how does that sort of look in these situations? Yeah, I mean, it's not always clear uh, who you're fighting against to begin with, especially. I mean, um, at the beginning of revolutions, um, it can seem like uh, there's there's one focal point, uh, there's one figure or institution that's hated, and the entirety of society can unite in opposition to that. Um, so, you know, in Russia, it was the figure of the Tsar. In the Middle East, more recently, it's been the figure of uh, the presidents or the dictators who've ruled for decades and decades unchallenged. And so in, in targeting those individuals, um, you can seem to unite the whole population behind you. And that's why you see in so many revolutions, I mean, the early phases, huge protests where everyone's waving the national flag and singing the national anthem and all that kind of stuff. However, as things begin to unfold, it becomes clear that what looks like a unified national population is actually a society divided into classes and, and political um, groupings. And so um, after getting rid of some individual or some hated institution, um, there'll be a section of the population, especially the ruling class, the middle class, the wealthy, uh, who want to go back to the, the status quo um, with some minor tweaks, who want to argue that we've got to get back to business as usual. Um, and then there's the working class and the poor for whom getting rid of an individual is insufficient and something much more fundamental is required. Um, and that's where you see some of the tensions and debates break out in the movement um, and also some of the more um, profound social organising that needs to go on um, via the working class and poor in particular. Mm. So what are some of the debates that come up then, Tess? You mentioned earlier that this is kind of what starts to happen. It's one of the good things actually about revolution that people get to engage in genuine political debates that mean something and not just ticking a box for the colour red party or the colour blue party like most of us get to, you know, that's (laughs) our engagement in politics. So in a revolution, you're actually having these debates and often what happens is, you know, People decide we need to have a, a mass kind of discussion about this. We need to have someone facilitate that. We need to vote on what we want to do or write down some things and kind of all of the things that, you know, people think um, only certain qualified people can do, like running meetings or having political opinions suddenly, that all gets swept aside and people just do it. So what are some of the things that get discussed and debated at these points? Well, this kind of stuff will happen in basically any mass movement, social campaign, mass strike, etc., where people will have to, like, they'll be forced to argue about why are we actually going on strike? Why are we actually protesting? And what are we going to try and achieve through this? Um, And through those discussions, you, of course, are going to have to have debates and differences of, of ideas and opinions on, you know, is the military on our side or is it against us? How do we defend ourselves from the police? Um, what 
uh, political party, what are the, the different political parties saying? Who do we agree with? Who do we disagree with? How do we organize the next steps? Like there's often a, a point in a revolution where you've, you know, had a series of strikes, but you can't just continue a strike indefinitely. And so there'll be key moments like, um, you know, in, in the Chilean revolution in, in, 19, in the 1970s, early 1970s, there was this moment where the, um, the ruling class in Chile tried to lock everyone out of the factories. Um, and there was, you know, this discussion amongst the working class over what's our response to this. And they decided that they were going to try and take control of the factories and start in some areas distributing things themselves. Mm. Um, so debating these kind of things, working out how you're going to organise it. Yeah, it happens in mm. basically every revolution and social movement. Yeah, so all those kind of tactical and strategic discussions are really important. Um, and underpinning those discussions are what your overall goals are. Um, if, if your goal is to basically remake a more humane version of the society that existed before, um, with the same ruling classes, the same hierarchies, the same systems of oppression, um, then your tactics are obviously going to be much more mild. Um, and you're going to argue for moderation, for conciliation, for going back to, going back to work, going back to school you know, giving up on the, the, the occupations of the public spaces or whatever that made the movement so vibrant. Conversely, if your goal is to fundamentally address the economic inequalities and injustices of the society, um, you're forced to grapple with, well, what are the root causes of these problems and what are some alternative ways of organizing society um, that pose solutions? And that kind of fits with as well um, what kind of uh, social force you look to for social change. So, that's why socialists talk about the working class, because we believe workers have the power um, to, to reorganize society at a fundamental level, because workers are at the core of the production process, the distribution process, everything that happens in society. And so by using that capacity um, and the inspiration and democratic process that unfolds in a revolution, you bring all that together and you have the basis for a better world. Yeah. So it's not that the working class are have immediately better sets of ideas in their heads or are just like morally good people or have better things in their hearts or whatever. But actually there's a real um, structural power that exists in the working class and the potentiality to be collective and to be organised and to be able to do that thing of fundamentally changing the system rather than just um, amending it and altering it. And so one of the things then that happens when there is – a working class lead in a revolutionary situation is that people start to form kind of collective organizations and committees and different, they're called different things, but in Russia they were called Soviets. And so that's the term that's often used in other revolutionary situations. But what are we talking about when we talk about um, a Soviet then? Um, yeah, Soviet or a workers' council is sort of the, the common terms used for it. It's really just a space for, for working class people to be able to organise the revolution. So um, the reason they're often set up is because you need to, to organise how this strike is actually going to happen, debate out between workers from different factories um, about how long the strike is going to go, go for, what the demands of the strike is. Um, what we're going to do about the fact that, that bosses are trying to sabotage sections of industry or, or um, hoard goods and food and starve out the strike, this kind of stuff. How can we organise all of this? Um, and a part of the process of revolution of all of these ordinary working class people coming to the fore and trying to make decisions for themselves is that they develop these organs where they have the um, democratic ability to make those kind of decisions um, and to have those kind of debates out, not just having some... 
uh, you know, like a parliamentary group or leadership figure that makes decisions for you, but where you can can democratically elect people into these groups and, and make the decisions from the bottom up. Yeah, absolutely. Because society um, is fundamentally governed by um, the capitalist state at the moment. So that's the parliament, the courts, the, the police, the army, etc. Um, as long as that remains intact and unchallenged, then you're going you're gonna to have capitalist rule with all the negative consequences that come with that. What needs to happen in revolutions is that workers begin to develop an alternative to that. Um, that's you know centralized across the whole country because you can't defeat the state and the capitalists in one city or in one area. It needs to be coordinated across the country. It needs to be democratic from the bottom up. Um, and workers' councils really begin to an offer up, begin to create an opportunity for workers to see that actually a different world is possible, and that all the work that they do at a daily level can be coordinated through the structure of these um, institutions. Uh, to organise the entirety of society. So they're kind of schools of, of class war um, uh, in a true sense. And, and through workers' councils, uh, workers can begin to become conscious of, of, of an alternative way of doing things. Yeah, because I guess what we're talking about is if, if we're, as socialists, we're saying the revolutionary process needs to get rid of all of the old institutions of capitalism. Well, once you've done that, you can't just have nothing there and just this big space. Well, because other people will want to fill it. In fact, capitalism wants to refill it again if you just leave the situation after a revolution to kind of see what happens. So um, it's not necessarily even that it's this conscious thing that workers then say, well, we should form our own committees or um, councils or whatever and start to organise stuff ourselves. But it just makes sense when you start to think, well, do we need the bosses to organise things? Why are we producing all of this crap that nobody wants and it's just about profit making? Why are we digging coal out of the ground still in Australia or whatever it is? Why don't we start to build different things in renewable energy and all of those kind of things? And how are we going to organise that? Well, we have to organise it ourselves. So we'll set up organisations and committees and things to be able to do that. And then we don't need the old ones anymore. So that's sort of how um, kind of that, idea that workers power is kind of um only able to be expressed through that soviet power or or um all those workers councils and so on but that all sounds really great and um be it'd be a brilliant society let's if, do it, yeah. if we yeah let's okay let's do that um but obviously that that doesn't exist anywhere um at the moment and there's a lot more stories that we hear. We don't hear a lot actually about workers' councils or Soviets. We hear a lot more about the fact that when people have had revolutions, it ends really badly. And therefore, there is no alternative. Stick with capitalism. Why don't you just try and make it better? And revolutions just end in uh, a bloodbath and actually things can get worse when you have a revolution. Yeah, Uh I've heard that argument many times. Um, probably the most common way is like, well, revolution always ends in tyranny, doesn't it? So we may as well just fight for reforms in the here and now. Um, I think it's garbage. I think it is a, an argument that is an attempt to justify not taking the side of the oppressed when they're trying to fight against their oppressors. Um, but I think a lot of people can just end up accepting it because it's argued by so many people. Um, but the reality is when you look at capitalism today, it is an incredibly brutal and repressive system. Like there are far right political parties who are in power in parts of Europe 
the way in which the Australian government treats refugees is like with so much intense brutality um, that you end up having children sewing their lips together in protest and people setting themselves on fire in opposition to it. Um, the sort of day-to-day sort of wearing down of people um, just through the regular exploitation that happens in every single workplace across across the world, um, that if that is the system that you have to accept, um, then like, you know, the, the whole argument about all well, revolution always ends in tyranny, it's like, well, capitalism creates tyranny regardless of whether or not a revolution happens. Um, and the tyranny that has come post-revolution in certain instances has been a result of the capitalist class trying to crush us as they try and do every time we have a, a attempt to gain more rights and as they do on a regular day-to-day basis anyway. Um, so the, the whole point of a revolution is trying to get rid of that oppressive tyrannical system um, that we have to live under on a, on a day-to-day basis and that people are suffering from around the world at the moment. Yeah, I think the argument about um, violence is is a really um, shameless one because anyone who looks at society in a, in a real way knows that it's a pretty violent one as we stand, as we speak. I think the stat is 20 or 30,000 children die every day because of poverty-related um, things. And so, you know, if you look at that, you look at the homelessness, you look at the exploitation, you look at the, the wars that almost start, you know, every few months most recently, the one with Iran, um, between Iran and America, the fact that a million people have been killed in the Middle East since 2003, like there's a lot of violence. And so revolution, as, as Tess said, is about ending that. I think in terms of dealing with the violence of the state and the counter-revolution that comes inevitably, the stronger your side is, um, the more capacity you have. Um, and in particular, an organized um, movement. Um, so we've seen in the Middle East in particular recently um, enormous protests, but then, uh, and they can, they can push back the police and, and, and even the army for a certain period of time. But there's not the networks of organisation that have the capacity to coordinate a response. So that goes back to the workers' councils thing. Um, the, the more organised our side is, the more we can resist. But also, if you have a political orientation to these institutions, they're actually class divided themselves. So the army, for example, um, the army is not a homogenous block. It is an institution with workers in uniform and, you know, ruling class shits from private schools in uniform. Um, and so a serious revolution with a serious revolutionary organization involved can actually appeal to the army rank and file in particular and try and break them from their uh, offices and call for them to mutiny to rebel um, and plenty of revolutions have involved these kind of mutinies so um, every institution of the state more broadly can be understood in this way there's a class divide within it um, and um, the goal of a serious revolution is to break it and the stronger your side is the more capacity you have to do that yeah the other thing i think about in terms of the sort of counter-revolutionary process that is inevitable when you have a revolution that the people who want to maintain the system as it is, the ruling class of capitalism, will try to stop you doing that. Mm. But then people sort of talk about that as if it's a kind of like this neutral thing. So if we have a revolution, it'll be crushed. It's like, but who is crushing it? It's the capitalist system itself. So don't you want to get rid of that? You know, like it's not just going to be a process that is faces no opposition because that's the system that we're trying to get rid of that's defending itself against that kind of possibility that it could be different. And all of that is human beings making decisions about things. It's not some, you know, I think it's partly connected maybe with the way that people think about the economy under capitalism as not being to do with human beings making decisions. Like it's just some neutral sort of timeless thing. When capitalism is such a young system in the history of the whole of humanity, 
and that there's been thousands, tens of thousands of years. I mean, if you think about the Australian history of not having a class-based society, like people don't have to live like this. But I think that's kind of the power of capitalism to make you think that this is it now. But um, I mean, the other thing I think um, maybe we should talk about a little bit is the fact that um, the climate crisis that we're facing now, that people are more and more connecting with capitalism, makes people think we do need system change. And then thinking about um, the importance of revolution in what we mean by system change, not climate change. So it's not just some different government or a better way of doing it or a better set of policies around the environment. But actually, when we talk about system changes as socialists, we're talking about a revolution and we need to think about all of the things that we've been um, talking about today. But that's a really good example of how contested these terms become because um, system change or radical change or fundamental change is understood by lots of different people in the environment movement in different, lots of different ways. So some people say the system change we need is to abolish animal agriculture, which I have some sympathy with, but under a capitalist system, that's never going to happen um, and wouldn't solve the problem anyway. Other people mean we need to embark on a, a state-driven, state-funded um, round of investment into renewable energy and, and forcibly phase out the fossil fuel industry, um, which I don't think will happen. And I think, again, um, as long as a capitalist state is driving that, it's going to lead to in- increased exploitation and misery for a lot of people. You know, and, and the same thing happens in revolution. You have people who say, yeah, I'm for revolution. What we should do is elect a new parliament. That's revolutionary because we've had the same parliament for three years. Or in a dictatorship, it can seem very revolutionary to have a parliament because you've just had a dictatorship for 40 years. So you can have a, an essentially a, a smaller liberal getting up on the streets and saying, comrades, we've got to do this amazing thing. We're going to have democracy, real democracy in our society. And that can seem really appealing. And, 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 and it's legitimate that people find that appealing. But fundamentally, that argument uh, is to stabilize the status quo. And if you look at revolutions throughout history, mostly they're not defeated immediately by physical violence. Most revolutions are not uh, physically annihilated in the first instance. Mostly, they're undermined and, and rotten from within by people who want to um, have a foot in both camps, a foot in the capitalist camp and a foot in the movement, or a foot in the conservative camp and a foot in the movement. And they want to try and reconcile those two things and bring those two things together. Um, so, you know, in the French Revolution, it's the Girondins who are famous for trying to do that. Um, but, you know, more recently, of course, it's sort of social democracy. It's reformists who, who think that, yes, there needs to be change, but we cannot go beyond the fundamental relations of capitalism. And, and they're the people who most often uh, lead to the undermining of morale and and open up the possibilities for the military or whatever physical violence to come in and sweep the thing away. Yeah, totally. And I think you can see that in the environment movement when you have some sections of the capitalist class or, or the social democratic parties who make arguments for a, a minor policy change, you know, and this is how we're going to take some great step that addresses the climate issue in contrast to the conservatives that just want to like wholeheartedly defend the, the fossil fuel industry. But in reality, they end up uh, both of these political parties or groupings end up assisting the fossil fuel industry and continuing to wreak havoc on on the population. Um, But also, yeah, during the sort of process of revolution, that's really when when those arguments become most clear, I think, um, and the role of those sort of uh, social democratic parties, you can imagine the Labor Party playing this role in Australia, um, become most important in trying to wrap up the struggle, convince people that we can't take it any further, try and convince people that people who have opposed class interests to them are actually on their side. 
Um, so, you know, there's a really infamous example in, in Chile. There's this incredible footage from a, a documentary, The Battle of Chile, where there's workers in um, one of the workers' councils who are saying, we need to be able to defend ourselves from the military. The military are coming in and they're going to try and um, just completely execute this revolution. And the representatives from the, the Social Democratic trade union are saying, no, 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 we just have to trust the the political leadership. We just have to trust the Socialist Party that they know what they're talking about. They have your best interests at heart, etc. Um, and effectively managed to push those workers out of taking more radical action. The way of the revolution You get these moments um, that are really in hindsight, the kind of turning point moments in a revolution. And sometimes that is the physical sort of smashing of things in the army and all of that. But most often it is these political moments of debate where somebody is convinced or some group have convinced enough people that the stability of the system is more important or some small change or we'll accept this one thing now and we'll get this other thing later if we do this. So what is the thing then that's crucial, Omar, in terms of um, that development of Soviets as the new power structure or the new system of organising society that a socialist world would need? How do we get to that? Yeah, I think um, uh, this was raised earlier when we were talking about the workers' councils. You need conscious organisations arguing for that, you know? I mean, uh, I don't think we're going to make a socialist revolution by accident. I don't think we're going to sleepwalk into a new society. It's never happened before. Uh, it's not going to happen now. I think um, and, and the working class has a lot of disadvantages, you know, like we can't build up our power within the system. We can't develop alternative economies at a mass scale that empower workers and so on uh, in the way the capitalists could, for example, under feudalism. We need consciousness and we need consciousness that can respond to moments that sometimes last a week or two. You know, in some revolutions, there's a turning point where um, you either succeed or you fail based on how you respond to something. And, un- and, and, and often reformists treat the working class in a very instrumental way. So they say, oh, there's an election coming up, so we need everyone to get really mobilized and maybe go to a protest, but also do lots of door knocking. And then the election's over, everyone go back home. Um, and they have the same attitude in, in, in mass struggles and revolutionary scenarios as well. Whereas socialists understand when you have the momentum, if you let it slip, you can just be smashed. And, and, and if you don't take the opportunity when you've got a million people on the street to fundamentally act and change society, uh, you can be defeated. So having a conscious um, socialist movement as part of a broader workers' movement and movement of the poor um, is absolutely necessary because there have been a lot of revolutions where you've got workers' councils. That's not a, a unique thing to Russia um, because they practically require it to solve tasks like distribution of food and resources and so on. Um, or, or, you know, in the West, there's been like strike committees that organize a general strike, say, and they just start to meet permanently and start to make decisions about things, uh, which is very obvious. You could argue for that to, to become a more permanent institution. But the people involved don't necessarily see things like that. And there's always a, pe- a bunch of people involved who are actively hostile to that. And they want to they wanna preserve the power of the capitalist state, its unique monopoly over control over society. Um, and so they, they're arguing against such things. And the most dramatic example of that is in Germany, where you have more workers' councils than in Russia. I'm, I'm talking about 1918 here. You have a mutiny in the army. Workers' councils establish themselves all across the country. Far more workers' councils than in Russia. Far more democratically organized, far quicker. Um, but, but the majority of those councils the party within that dominates is the reformist party, the social democratic party. And they're also a majority in the capitalist parliament. And so they say to everyone, don't worry, guys, we got this. You know, we'll deal with it in parliament. And, and people accept that. 
um, because there's not a counter-argument. And to begin with, as we said at the very beginning, revolutions, it can seem like everyone's in it together. So having a, an, an active and organized minority to begin with, um, arguing against such kind of concessions, that can hopefully over time, as the reformist and, and kind of reactionary um, forces expose themselves, um, grow in imp- importance and begin to make an argument for something different. That's mm. really crucial. Yeah, and that's not just like, you know, making an argument in a parliamentary situation, making an argument via a a leaflet or a newspaper or something. Like you're talking about a mass revolutionary workers party. This is having like revolutionary workers in workplaces all across the country who are a part of the battle alongside other workers um, and are making arguments to people on a day-to-day basis. And that can be important at every stage of the struggle. You know, it's not just like when the tipping point comes, there's the big debate about where whether you're going to um, follow the argument of the reformists or, or whether you're going to try and stake out a, a point for revolution. But there's so many points during um, a, a revolutionary struggle and even beforehand when these debates are really crucial about, you know, what are we going to do about the military? What are we going to do about the next strike wave? Are we going to start seizing production for ourselves? All of these kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of arguments. A revolutionary party plays a crucial role in that. And when we use this phrase, um, very important Marxist phrase about you know, a revolution is about the self-emancipation of the working class. That's really just saying, unlike other, um, reform- uh, unlike reformists or other people who call themselves socialists, maybe we don't say, well, we can have these mass struggles, we'll change things, and then someone else who's better will start telling you what to do and how to organize things. In fact, when we talk about self-emancipation, we say. We set up these Soviets or workers' councils and committees and we organise things and you and we and you listening and me and all of us together organise society ourselves incredibly democratically and so on and make decisions and start to run the world and actually save the world <laughs> from destruction in the way that it's heading under capitalism. So that's what we're talking about and why the politics of all of this um, makes such a big difference. Totally. And, and the thing is, that argument is butting up against a lot of um, inherited wisdom, quote unquote. Um, yeah. You know, we're always told that we're nothing, we're worthless, you know, we're test started. And, and so the idea that, you know, teachers, nurses, street sweepers, janitors, construction workers could run society just seems so foreign, um, even to those people. You know, it's not just that the, the ruling class and the media think it's foreign. Mostly those people don't think they could run society and they can. And, you know, Lenin's very famous quote, every cook shall govern. He was mocked for that, but he was right. And, and we believe that. Um, but, but, but even in a moment of revolution, it's not obvious to everyone that's the case. And so having people encouraging the best elements of people's self-confidence and self-activity and arguing for more of that can be really decisive. And you can see that in France right now. I mean, it's not a revolution, but it's a mass strike wave. And the union leaders, some of them at least, are saying, we've got enough concessions now. Let's wind it up. Um, and the majority of workers are not happy with that. Um, but for now, it's still a minority of unions, so the strike will continue. But there could be a point quite soon where all the union leaders agree with one as much as we can. Um, and even if there's mass resistance to that at a grassroots level, if there's not someone offering a lead, a practical lead, not just an ideological lead, um, but, it, but it can actually organise you know, demonstrations or strikes or something physical and meaningful on the ground, um, then all that sentiment can be pissed up against the wall and and that's what a mass revolutionary organisation has to be has to be able to do, both in a revolution, but but well short of it, as Tess said. Mm. So we've talked about a lot of different um, things uh, on this episode, and 
a few different examples of revolutions, but Tess, if you were to recommend to people which re- kind of revolutions to read more about, um, what would be the starting point, do you think? Uh, it's like choosing between your favourites. Um, <laughs> uh, well, there's the classic revolution that I think everyone should have some understanding of, which is Russia in 1917. Um, this is the moment in which you saw working class power develop to uh, the greatest extent that it ever has. Um, and so I think that's quite an important one to try and, and read about and especially to try and read about from people who are involved in the revolution um, and, and from a revolutionary perspective because there's just so much garbage. Like I was reading the, the Year 12 VCE reader on Russia a few years ago and they say, well, the problem in Russia is that all of the Russians are just like bees. They always need a queen. And so that's why you ended up with Stalin because they needed some leader to take control in yeah, the end. So like, yeah. yeah. But reading about it from from a revolutionary perspective I think is important. Yep. And there's an excellent um, Russia long-form article on the Red Flag website, mm. so redflag.org.au, and if you look up Russia, you'll find one. It's, it's sort of a really great introduction to the revolution. It's also, if you, if you want to look at revolutions that have happened um, in, in more Western-type countries, um, which can be kind of useful to think about the challenges that we would face here, um, there's the, a book, uh, well, there's the German Revolution, uh, and there's a book by Chris Harmon called The Lost Revolution, which is really excellent, which kind of goes through um, the different dynamics of a revolution in a society with established trade unions and social democracy and some form of parliamentary democracy. Um, there's also um, May 68, um, you know, in France, um, and there's really good books about that, um, and Chile that Tess referenced a few times. Probably the most advanced um, struggle um, in a, an advanced capitalist country um, where you had embryonic dual power, you had um, a mass workers' movement. You had a very conscious and political workers' movement. Um, yeah, so they're some of the things that I would encourage people to read about as well. Yeah, and if you want to read about some of the revolutions in the Middle East, Marxist Left Review has a whole bunch of different really good articles. You would know Omar, you're the editor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a Start bunch there. of resources out there. Definitely something to keep reading about. Um, and thanks very much for joining us on the show. And um, I'll end by saying, as we do as socialists, There is only one solution, revolution. You're listening to Red Flag Radio.